0: the return on that investment is almost immediate and it's in health and well-being and a whole lot of other things that you know we maybe don't invest enough money into so that community that invests in trails is that's what ends up making the trail community because the rest of it springs up around it whether it's businesses property values that health and well-being you know that's it 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 comes right on the on the heels of that investment
1: check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 87 features Scott Lindenberger of Kaylin Enterprises. Scott is the planner, designer, and project manager for the Iron Range Destination Mountain Bike Trail Systems found in northern Minnesota. Those trail systems include Tioga Recreation Area, Redhead Bike Park, and Giants Ridge Bike Park, all of which have been featured on the Range Reports through this podcast. In this episode, Scott goes into what it took to get these three trail systems planned, designed, and built in a very small window of time. We also discuss the lessons he learned from these projects and how these projects can be replicated in other communities to provide huge positive impacts. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the guests and listeners who have taken the time to share these Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with tagging Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of the Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with Scott Lindenberger. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Scott Lindenberger. Scott is the principal with Kalen Enterprises. Prior to forming Kalen Enterprises, he was the director of field programs with IMBA, and this is going way back. So Scott has a lot of experience. He also has a master's in environmental environmental management from Duke University with a focus on wetland, stream ecology, restoration, and habitat planning. And then he's also got a bachelor's,
0: I believe, I didn't write this down. Yeah. In biology. And I used that to teach some high school kids some science at, at one point long ago.
1: Which, which may have helped when you were teaching people that probably aren't too far away from being high school kids at IMBA. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean the IMBA people. I mean, just with trail stuff and, and field related stuff. But I'm sure the teaching, the teaching skills have come in handy your entire life. Oh, yeah. So how's it going today, Scott? It's going well. Well, we are here to talk the Iron Range Mountain Bike Destination Trail Systems, which was a unique project, a large project, and one that I think many people can learn from in our discussion here today. So We can hope. So, well, let's, let's get in on the backstory of how this Mountain Bike Trail System Destination came to be. A lot of listeners, at, by this point, should be familiar with the Iron Range backstory. If not, there's a whole bunch of podcasts that we can link them to. But this is going to be the podcast or the interview that ties all of this together from beginning to end because as we've unearthed scott was part of this from the master planning phase on so let's talk about the backstory of this and maybe how you got involved and then
0: we'll move forward how's that sound scott that sounds great i guess this you know my involvement uh up in that area Started a long time ago um, when I was working at IMBA. Mork folks in Minneapolis were working with their Congressman Oberstar to develop the Kayuna project and uh, invited me up out there to meet with state park officials and kind of talk about mountain biking. At that point, Minnesota state parks didn't have any mountain biking in them, I don't believe. And this new project was. Was one that they kind of had to do because they had a congressional earmark to do it, but they didn't really know how to do it. And uh, you know, I was—I'd been going up through Minnesota to my parents' uh, summer cabin in Ontario all my life. Loved Minnesota, and uh, had passed through the Iron Range every summer, but never really saw it because we didn't get out of the out of the vehicle. You know, we we're getting up to the cabin. And, you know, went up to Kayuna and saw what was literally a, you know, a dead town and, you know, was thinking about the mining towns and rebirthing through recreation uh, that we'd seen out here in Colorado and Utah and thought, wow, this is, this is so similar. And, um, you know, three aisles at the grocery store had food on them and, uh, <laughs> you know, nothing was open except for a couple miner minor bars. And fast forward um, after the success of Cuyuna, uh, 10 years or so, and the director of the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation Department in Minnesota, um, Mark Phillips was getting close to retiring and was looking at, the, at Cuyuna and how much success that it had. And they're in the business of taking mining uh, receipts and taxes and rein- reinvesting them in community development. And he said, "Well, if it worked at Cuyuna, it can work up on the iron range. And we're gonna, before I retire uh, in a few years, we're gonna drop five million dollars into you know three destination quality trail systems up there um, and talked with some folks in the state of Minnesota and told them, you got to get it done before I retire because this is, you know, for us, this is going out on a on a very a very small limb. And uh, if you don't spend it before I retire, it it might get taken away from you. So I got I received a call from a guy named Jeff Schoenbauer, who'd been uh, a big proponent in trails in Minnesota for a long time. And he'd been talking with Mark Phillips and other folks at the IRRR and said and called me and he said, do you think this can get done? And I was like, what, 75 or 80 miles of trail get built in three years? I don't think it's happened before, but I don't think that means it can't happen. And he started strategizing with the folks at IRRR and uh, eventually um, they put out an RFP for a planner, designer, construction manager for the the project. And I applied uh, and received uh, that three-year contract to basically get these projects rolling, uh, work with the state to find contractors to do the construction, and then make sure the money got spent and put good trail on the ground. So it was, uh, you know... It was kind of a whirlwind project, uh, but and certainly not like anything I'd ever taken on before. So we got started in 2018. Uh, They're doing some building at Giants Ridge and uh, being a private ski area that's actually owned uh, by the IRRR. We're able to start construction there. And while we're starting construction there, uh, myself and a colleague, uh, Jeremy Wimpy, who owns Applied Trails Research, Uh, got started um, doing the planning and design for the rest of the bike park at Giants Ridge, as well as uh, the Redhead Bike Park and what's now the Tioga Recreation Area. So we uh, did a full 75 to 85 miles of trail flagging in uh, the summer of 2018 into fall 2018, while overseeing two or three crews working at Giants Ridge. And then uh, it all got started in in earnest and and real fast in 2019 we were able to get the project done before mark retired and we spent all their money so i think from from that perspective uh, they considered it a a good investment
1: yeah let's there's one area that didn't get touched on and actually didn't even come on my radar until I'd seen the movie bike town. And this is specific to redhead, but not specific or the movie bike town featured redhead. But this little wrinkle needed to be ironed out before you could move forward, which is changing the legal status of entry into the mine areas. So anything could happen in there. Did you have any, do you have any insight on that hurdle
0: itself? No, luckily, all, all that got done before I got involved. I learned of of that, you know, as I started the project uh, through uh, the advocates in Chisholm that had worked for years to get that law changed. But it's you can see why you know those laws are around. There's bunches of high walls in these old strip mines, and uh, the mining companies felt like it would really be problematic if people fell off those high walls and died. And so there's fences around all of these mines, there's very little public access uh, along the Iron Range because all of it is in mining claims. So there's, you know, a handful of small mine pit lakes that, you know, have a road down to them that you can access. But other than that, um, you know, unlike a lot of the rest of Minnesota, there's very little public land to access. And strangely, you know, they have the most topography in the state, and it was all basically off limits, unless you were pulling ore out of it.
1: Yeah, that's and like I said, I didn't know anything about that until I saw it, I saw it mentioned in the movie. And but it it did it did ring true to me in terms of like when I go mountain biking in places like Marquette and Ishpeming in the UP, you know, especially Ishpeming and Nagani area up in the UP outside of Marquette, they have a lot of fenced off areas because all of that mountain biking is happening also on on old mining land, you know, and so and it's it hitting on the fact that you thought this could be replicated based on what you've seen in Utah and in Colorado is is so vitally important because this is a pretty common theme here with revitalizing communities through the use of recreation and recreation tourism.
0: Yeah, and that's I mean something that's the I triple R's business, you know, is to, you know, try to Stem the you know inevitable tide of the boom bust cycle in in these mining communities by reinvesting in them, but that's you know it's this was such a non traditional project for them because they're usually you know they're in the mining industry so when you think about community development you think about brick and mortar and you know they built the Minnesota Discovery Center um, they you know they build rec centers uh, they do those kinds of things for this community and. You know, something that you couldn't see as a as a building afterwards is what made it such a small limb for them to go out on. Why are we paying money for trails?
1: Well, and I would venture to guess that you know the the Minnesota Discovery Center is is obviously a great thing, and things like that are great. But how many times does? And I don't want to I don't want to stereotype the Minnesota Rec Center, but how many times does a rec center like that, or something that is maybe a museum or informative like that, how many times does that get repeat customers, time and time and time again, like a trail system does?
0: Yeah, they used to run like every fifth grader in Minnesota would go on a field trip that went up to the Minnesota Discovery Center and learned about Minnesota's mining history and. But, you know, with education cuts, that didn't happen as much anymore. And so it was kind of a regional visitation thing. And I don't think people come back to that very often. They see it once and, you know, when their next kid gets to be of an age where they might appreciate it, they make a second visit. But, you know, just seeing folks at Tioga and, and Redhead, you know, families that I would start to see there repeatedly on an every other kind of day basis. I started to recognize their cars. It's like, this is something that this is really valued in your community. You're really taking advantage of this. You know, mothers with their kids out scouring the internet to find a bike during the pandemic to buy so that they could mountain bike with their kids. is it, it was an unbelievable experience and one that I've never seen before. Seeing a project get developed so quickly that It just, it's driving community change as it's happening.
1: Yeah. Let's stay on Redhead before we, because I'm going to take us into the weeds um, on this in a bit, but what's, you know, some of the unique things about Redhead, and I want you to speak to this as you've experienced it, but you, there's a, there's a rail system and now you can actually access these mine areas through trails. How did that perspective for you individually when you were flagging and stuff change in your mind, but then as things opened up, how did you see it change with the public?
0: Um, You know, I think that's one of the challenges. Uh, You know, we're out there on this landscape that, you know, doesn't have any trails, planning for those trails with a really tight timeline to then construct these trails and getting the community, especially in Chisholm, which is a, you know, It's very different from the other side of the range in Grand Rapids, where they've got a multitude of different historic industries. Chisholm is a mining town still, active mines all around the town. And while the IRRR bought into this, the town eventually has to be the caretaker for that trail system. So while IRRR was pretty certain it was going to be successful, the town was really reticent. You know, I made a couple different trips to speak to council and kind of try to explain things to them. They had one council person that was a champion for it. And I think, you know, eventually that's that's what turned the tide enough to get the town of Chisholm to say, yes, we will take responsibility for stewarding this trail system after it's completed. Now they're really excited. They're seeing, you know, all the different changes that it brings about. but that rapid project development pace was it was more challenging socially and i would say also with uh the regulatory agencies in minnesota than you know actually spending the money and getting the trail built
1: and that's interesting and i've said many many times on this through this podcast that money isn't usually a huge hurdle like some people think it is it's more the access and all of the stuff that leads up to that and I think that's a huge takeaway here that, you know, it really getting, getting the community buy-in and, and then letting them see after it's built, how it does make such a positive change.
0: Yeah. And I mean, decision makers are decision makers. They're, they don't want to go out on a limb. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, these folks didn't know, they've got a lot of ATV trails. They got a lot of snowmobile trails to kind of understand those mountain bike trails and people out trail running that's wasn't something that a lot of folks in that town really understood and didn't understand why they needed it because they thought they didn't need it you know we want we want business and industry and we want the mines to continue to you know keep digging ore out and that's what they knew
1: which is really good to have that diversity of you know of of economic value You know, to have to to still have mining, but then bring in this other layer that can keep restaurants thriving and even popping up and whatnot and all the other things that come with it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. You talk with local businesses and, you know, go to local Italian restaurant and those folks had a little bit different opinion about, you know, seeing more cars going through Main Street was, you know, that was a good thing to them. And, you know, spent a lot of time talking with those kind of folks as well. That um, you know, when when the Audi runs through with thirty thousand dollars of mountain bikes hanging off of it, make sure you take as much of their money in town as you can.
1: Yeah. And they're I mean, they're all looking for food and everything else that comes with
0: it. Exactly.
1: Let's go in a lot of the lot of the listeners of the show are in the trail building profession, we'll say. And I'm sure somebody out there, even if that's just me, is wondering what it really took from a planning perspective. To just do the flagging and stuff in that time frame, and what you know, what what your days look like, you know, to get to get that project going to where you could get builders in there.
0: Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm I'm a little bit different than a lot of other folks in the trails industry. I don't I don't dig in the dirt. Uh, I do mostly master planning and design. You know, large trail system kind of assessment and uh, redevelopment planning. So. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in the woods. Uh, wan- wandering about hanging flags that uh hopefully become trails in 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 the future. It's uh you know, I I grew up bushwhacking around, you know, islands and forest in on Lake of the Woods in Ontario and that seems like I'm getting paid to do it now and it's that's a pretty special thing. You know, and it's 39 degrees and snowing in minnesota in october and you're spending all day doing that you know there, there's better days uh, than that but it's not like wearing a suit to an office
1: yeah for for sure how how long were those days
0: <laughs> <laughs> um you know jeremy and i put a lot of time onto those sites uh and you know eight, 10 hour flagging days um after you're doing some construction management at the beginning and end of the day They made for long days, but um, usually don't get to work on a project like that from a design and planning perspective, where then so quickly we see the trails get built. You know, a lot of projects, you know, working in a city park, say, and, and designing eight or so miles of trail, and they don't construct that trail for three or four years. And Oftentimes it's, you know, part done by volunteers, some done by contractors. Oftentimes I never see the final product. So this was this was really special in that, you know, flagging, sometimes flagging in front of contractors that were, you know, chasing you through the woods in an excavator because, you know, one thing didn't work out with this trail leg, and so we had to change it. You know, this it's a really seepy hillside. So yeah. Staying in front and um, communicating those changes to folks in in an excavator uh, became a, you know, it's a daily occurrence.
1: Let's go into the locations. So we have have, uh, Grand Rapids and Cohasset, which is the Tioga Trails. You have Giants Ridge, which, as you've already alluded to, is a publicly owned, which I didn't even know until I interviewed Benji Neff from Giants Ridge. That's a state-owned through R ski area and now Mountain Bike Park. And then you have Chisholm, Minnesota, which is redhead, but all these places, these three places are distinctly different in terms of the, what they offer to the, to the end user. You know, maybe we could start out on the, I guess it be the West side with the Cohasset Grand Rapids trail system and what that is like compared to the other ones.
0: Yeah. I'd say, you know. After I got the contract to to do that work and started to uh, speak with, you know, the different players at each of those sites, you know, the universal thing that they all agreed on was, we don't want these to be the same trail system. And, you know, sitting in Colorado and talking to them on the phone, I I didn't have any idea what the landscapes were like. So I said, yeah, we'll, we'll do our best to make these really distinct from each other. And then got on site, and the three sites are so different that I mean, it was it was really the easiest part of the project to make these become different kinds of mountain bike destinations. And Tioga is relatively small acreage wise. You know, it's on a piece of land. It's on some state land and county land. It's maybe 400 acres in size, with some ponds and wetlands on it. So you know, they wanted, the club there wanted to maximize, have as much mileage as they possibly could on that 400 acres. And, you know, to be a destination, we had to put significant mileage on it. And that became the biggest challenge is how to stack a whole bunch of mileage in and have it, you know, have unique elements uh, in each of those trails so that, you know, we're not looking at 15 miles of the same kind of Vanilla single track that, you know, if we're going to put a bunch of miles in there, it's going to have to wind around and be pretty close to each other a lot of times. How do we start hiding one trail from another trail? You know, with their old overburden um, piles from the mining days, they got a couple nice hills on the property. And those hills had a bunch of rock on them. So from the natural forest, single track, you know, pretty standard Minnesota style. We even through the woods, you know, a lot of mountain bikes specific features, but getting on top of the piles gave us a whole lot more opportunity to make really progressive uh, kind of trails. You being from the midwest, understand that you know it's been a kind of slow coming um, having mountain bike specific kind of progressive trail systems. but really now it's it's happening more in places like the upper midwest than Anywhere else in the country, save for like Bentonville, and it's great to see it. I think we're getting you know in our in my area around Boulder, about forty five minutes away, we're getting some of our first kind of progressive gravity oriented single use mountain bike trails. So you go to a place like Tioga and see that there's seven different distinct downhills off of these piles and you know that's just not something that was around before.
1: and on top of that, you have the Pathfinder playground at that site.
0: yeah. it's uh, it's been a long time coming. There was a lot of a lot of hurdles and issues with that that we don't really need to get into. Uh, but it's a whole different kind of uh, you know, worked with Pathfinder on now a couple different similar kind of projects, one in the Twin Cities that's uh, a fully weather Uh, Proofed hard surfaced pump track, like three mile pump track in the woods. So on 30 acres. So these things are starting to come around and seeing folks be open to something new. You're always depending on there being some precedent out there. And I think, you know, at a place like Tioga, we got to set a lot of precedents out there that and try things that, you know, maybe couldn't have gotten tried before in a different kind of project.
1: Let's head west. I'm sorry, let's head east. I am dyslexic. <laughs> let's head east towards uh, Chisholm and Redhead. And how does that differ from well, we know how it differs from Giants' Ridge, but we'll say different different than Tioga.
0: You know, it's um, when I showed up there and started to look around, like, this looks like a Utah Canyon. You know you've got these red rock walls that are vertical um, from the old mining activity. And you know, there's just a lot of steeps at that place. And with a trailhead at the Minnesota Discovery Center, which is the high point, you know, we know what that means from a trail use perspective. Every ride you take ends with climb back to the trailhead, and so you start to pair up uh, those kind of things. It's a much bigger site, you know. It's over a thousand acres. It's got a bunch of overburden piles on it, a huge lake. For a mining lake in the middle and a lot of steep slopes. And, you know, it just lends itself to more of a a traditional kind of enthusiast style mountain bike trail system. It's not all downhill. And some of the uphills are, um, you know, we wanted to make a lot of the uphills really accessible. But with the steep slopes that you got there, there's a lot of exposure. And, If we're going to perch people on, you know, the side of something vertical that, uh, you know, there's hundred plus foot drop-offs, part of making that a safe system is not making it a safe trail. We need to let people know that this is serious and um, it's exposed. And so we're not going to have a 4% climbing grade on this. That's really easy for kids. We're going to kind of punch in this chest a couple times with A bunch of 20% grades and make you understand that this is, it's going to be a challenge, you know, cardiovascularly. We wanted to build the best climbs in Minnesota at that site. We don't talk about climbs and mountain biking much anymore, but, you know, at a site like that, it really gives you a feel for that terrain uh, to be perched on the side of it in, you know, what a lot of folks would consider a, a scary, place to make a a technical rock move on your bike when um there's just a bunch of air next to you is something that a lot of riders uh really enjoy but when i see families at redhead you know at back at the trailhead with three kids that are crushed and (laughs) crying and they're like can't we have a trailhead that we can go downhill to and it just it doesn't work yet at Redhead like that. We're working on ways to to open up another trailhead, uh, which would be more uh, family friendly. But from right now, it's uh, it's an enthusiast style trail system, and you know it dries really quickly. Uh, with and the tread stays firm, and you know you get folks in May and June when Duluth is you know shrink swell clay. People can't ride. And on a Saturday, you just see this dream of cars now coming down the highway from Duluth because redheads dry and they don't have anything to ride yet. Um, So it's ironically maybe the first trail system in the state to dry out every spring. And it's one of the furthest north trail systems in a state that obviously doesn't dry out real quickly in the spring.
1: Yeah. I want to go back to that, that leaving that element of danger, because that's something we haven't talked about much in the show, but it's something that I've often thought about and seen in action with my full-time role at Wisconsin DOT. And that's like with, with drivers, it's like, if you give them a super easy straight road, they, there seems to be more accidents. But if you leave just a little bit of an element of danger where you got to keep them on their toes, and this is particularly in the winter with winter snow removal operations it seems like they're they're more focused on what they're doing and you actually have less issues and accidents
0: yeah you drive on some you know twisty road through the hollers and um, you don't ever see cars off of the side of that road and the people that are driving there are not going slow Uh, doing a number of projects in um, Appalachia right now and man, I, I almost have to pull over into someone's driveway because cars are stacking up behind me because people want to do 50 on a road that I can't possibly drive 50 on. And, you know, it's the same way with trails. Um, leaving, you know, there's a lot of folks that like the element of danger, like the element of challenge. And when you combine those, to be out on a ride and have to be on your game, for a lot of folks, that's that's a huge part of it. I think, you know, we're of an age that Every ride was like that when we started. Bikes were terrible. Routes were sometimes an insurmountable challenge that tossed you over the bars, and that was just part of it. And you know, as bikes got better, some of those routes they don't even seem to exist anymore. So, like trying to pack those kind of opportunities and those kind of experiences into a trail system, um, especially when you got the ability with a large trail system to make different sorts of experiences. That's what we want to do.
1: Yeah, it's, it's important. Um, and we, we all enjoy it so much. And you just, you just sent my brain back to a time where you were in lacrosse. This would have been in 2012, if I can pull that out of my memory, right? And you were speaking at the outdoor recreation trail, at, at the outdoor recreation organizations, uh, fall summit. And we also convinced you to come for a little walk in the woods and then some town of Shelby property, which if you remember is, is pretty rugged and that's actually where I learned how to mountain bikes. And so it was definitely exactly what you just explained. Bikes were not what they are today. Stuff was super narrow, super rocky and not purpose built.
0: Yeah. I I believe a couple years earlier than that, you and I might've been on a group ride on, um, some single speeds going up Hickson from the bottom up, you know, that wasn't an easy thing to do. Yeah. But we enjoyed it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The old TNT trail probably. Yep. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well let's
1: head, let's head further East to Giants Ridge and talk about Giants Ridge because Giants Ridge is actually unique in the sense that it has, it is a gravity bike park, but it also has a cross country trail system there as well.
0: Yeah, that it's really incredible terrain and not anything that I expected. You know, it's a big granite bump and that bump is flat on top and it's thousands of acres flat. So the snow and all the water that builds up in the winter has to go somewhere. It's the wettest, it's as wet as a place as I've ever seen. Because it's like a bathtub, and the water just keeps draining out of it throughout the year. It's also super rocky. It's, uh, you know, every, you know, remember seeing trail building crew show up and been working there and watching another trail building crew work, and they pulled up with their excavators, and they're all proud of them because they would gotten a couple new ones that were bigger than their old ones were, and they're like, what do you think about our new machines? My response to them is, I hope they can pick up the rocks that are here. (laughs) (laughs) They look small for what this terrain is going to challenge you with. And it is, um, it's probably the hardest, some of the hardest trail building I've ever seen. And you just don't naturally think about that in Minnesota. But folks were, you know, they take out, extract five to 10 feet of boulders vertical in the ground. To find dirt, and then they'd harvest the dirt to make the trail, but they'd have to leave the dirt on the side of the trail while they put the boulders back in the holes that they'd made before they could put the dirt back on top of the boulders. And there was still a lot of boulders sticking out. And then they had to manage the water that was all coming off the side of this mountain. And you know, I, I brought one of the trail builders that didn't end up working on the project, but was pre-qualified uh, to do it. A friend of mine who you've interviewed, Greg Mazum, he was in the area looking at another project and I was like, you should come over and and check out Giant's Ridge. And he came over and looked at it and he just shook his head like, you know, in the state of Colorado, we'd be under State Bureau of Investigation for what's happening on this hill building trails. I said, you know, it's funny because out here in the mining community, you know, somebody running a, a six or 10 ton excavator. They think that these are little machines. (laughs) They laugh about, "Wow, how are you doing any work in the woods with such a small machine?" And Greg's looking at it like, "I don't think my crews have ever used machines that size, and I don't think they ever will because they wouldn't be allowed to." So it's uh, it's a tough site, but what came out of it, I think, is is a pretty incredible bike park. We worked real hard. You know, the hardest thing to do was to build beginner-friendly trails there. We could have super technical, rocky breaking bikes all day long kind of trail with absolutely no problem. But you know, it's a ski area and they're in the business of putting heads in beds, selling food, giving families a good experience. And, you know, ski areas are family oriented. No matter where you are, that's where they make their money. So if you know we got a mixed kind of skill group or new riders from a family going up there, they're the ones that really have to have the best experience. Um, because they're going to be return visitors. They're overnight stay kind of folks. They spend more at a restaurant as a family of four or six than, you know, you or me would grabbing, you know, something to eat in a, after a day of riding. So building beginner trails there was, it was a huge challenge. And it was, it's fun to see them come out of, of the ground uh, because, you know, watching, seven-year-olds that can just glide and don't have to pedal that's a really easy way to get in mountain biking
1: yeah and that was something that they were super purposeful with and they they had seen other that you know they had seen other resorts around the country succeed and they took note early on that the success was from having that full experience not just from you know the hardcore
0: mountain biker on up yeah first day at giants ridge and standing on the hill with Benji and looking at some of the trail that had been built there already the season before. And he said, yeah, the, the contractors tell us this is beginner trail. Like, <laughs> no, no, we can't. This is not beginner trail. <laughs> There's jumps on it. <laughs> we got to gotta break people in a little. That's, a, that's an intermediate trail. So we got we to gotta go back to the drawing board for beginner trails.
1: Yeah, and I I know one of those contractors well cuz he built in both ni- 2018 and 2019 was building in Lacrosse prior to going to Giants Ridge both years.
0: Yeah. And I mean those guys do what they do really well. And sometimes, you know, I mean, you need the kids to have the easy smooth flowing downhill to get into it. But then their skills progress so quickly that they're into that intermediate trail. And then you look at, you know, that same kid who goes to mountain bike camp at Giants Ridge now. And after one mountain bike camp, you know, you see him on the jump trail that Pathfinder built and he's clearing jumps. So they progress so quickly that you need that full spectrum of opportunities out there because otherwise, you know, by the time the kid's 14, he's got nothing left to ride he's mastered that place and he needs something bigger or better.
1: Yeah. Well, and on, and on that note, it might be that kid's parents too, that never have ridden before, and they need a place to ride. So it could be a family thing. You know, I'm just helping my girlfriend get into mountain biking now. And she's 39 years old. You know, she might, maybe I should edit
0: that out. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's the truth in Minnesota. The Nica league is so huge in this, in that state that, you know, and now parents are, you know, I travel around, you know, with my kids to soccer games, parents are going around, you know, to mountain bike events with their kids. And if they don't mountain bike, you know, they've traveled two hours, they've gone to a trail system, their kid has raced, they stay overnight. And then, you know, on their way back to wherever they came from, you know, their kids on trail forks or something saying, hey, can we stop here and ride? There's this new trail system, or there's this, this place to ride between us and home. And parents are like, well, we don't ride. And so they're getting drug into buying bikes and starting a mountain bike by their, you know, middle school and and teenagers, which is just awesome. Going to the bike shop in Grand Rapids and, you know, see them trying to sell, you know, new mountain bikes to these folks that just started riding because their kids are high school racers. And it's something that they can do as a family that makes their, you know, that weekend trip to the race more of a weekend vacation.
1: Let's go back into the weeds as far as like what it took to get this project built. And I, and what I mean by that is the magnitude of managing multiple companies and leading their staff, because you had, if I, if I did my research right or know this, right. And you could correct me. You had six companies there building possibly more, but I say that as companies because they have multiple 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 staff people under each one of those companies because like you said you built 75 to 85 miles of trail in what three years
0: yeah it was um you know when the project started when it was funded well and because minnesota state prevailing wages are are so high the contractors really you know their their workers really enjoyed these projects they could really dig in and so yeah we had two, three, sometimes four crews from a trail building company, you know, on the project and seven different companies represented some super small, um, one and two man operations, some, you know, the bigger trail building companies in the country, but all of them were pre-qualified. We went through a qualification process so that, because we can't hold hands on a project like that, they needed to be good, and they needed to be able to work in the environments that they were given, which were awfully challenging on all three sites. So it was great that we were able to pre-qualify folks. And you know, my time in the industry, and I, I knew a lot of these folks and what their capabilities were. And so then it was a matter of understanding, you know, the crew foreman and what their capabilities were, matching them with. You know a particular trail that is you know conducive to their creativity and or their frankly sometimes just capacity not to get gripped in the in the seat of the excavator because it you know it's not a safe place in terms of there's challenge in riding but you got to build through that stuff and yeah so We got stuck in, you know, not having fully vetted, approved permits at the very beginning of the construction process. So we had 40 individual trail builders representing seven different companies, and they were all working on the Tioga site at once. And, you know, on these overburdened piles, you know, over 100 foot of elevation, a lot of rocks get moved. So it's, you know, sometimes the logistics of saying like, Oh, this crew A can't be working down here at the base of the slope because uh, this crew up here is at the top of the hill and are rolling rocks down. And they're not small rocks. they're rocks that could do serious damage. So we're having to move crews here and there. and um logistically, it was it was a lot of fun because it's, you know, forty trail builders on a four hundred acre site. and they, were pu- they literally were pushing out like four miles a trail of plus a week, four to five miles. And so because the other because uh, Redhead and Giants' Ridge in uh, the forest and outside the ski area weren't ready to go yet, Tioga got built soup to nuts in like three months. It just popped out of the ground. It became kind of a problem because we outstripped you know, the city's capacity to build parking lot and trailhead areas. You know, there was an existing parking lot there that's used for folks swimming in the pit lake. Mountain bikers just kind of came out of the woodwork and families became mountain bikers out of nowhere. And we overwhelmed the parking lot. We were down in the boat ramp area, making the fishermen angry. But 24 miles of trail, you know, from June 1st to like August 15th, it was it was in. It just never seen that before. The whole whole park smelled like diesel fuel and hydraulic fluid for for two and a half months. Uh, but just yeah, every week, uh, some of the local club members would come over and they're like, "Whoa, I just rode for twenty five minutes on trails that weren't here last Sunday, <laughs> and you know, pushed three, four, five miles in in a week, and it was amazing and challenging." But with good trail builders, overseeing that is, you know, it's a logistical challenge, but when folks are good and you're communicating with them, this is the type of experience we want to provide on this trail. Here's the flag we got. It starts up here. It pops out down here. We want this trail A to be different from this trail B in this way. They're good builders. And so they, they make that happen. And, you know, then you're out there every day with them. Um, so we would, you know, I'd see each each crew probably twice a day and look at what they're doing and troubleshoot things. And it became, a, you know, as a construction manager, much more of a collaborator in those kinds of situations. You know, it's how do I help the trail builders with any issues that they've got? We can bounce ideas off of each other. Uh, it's, you know it's a whole lot of carrot and and not so much stick. And when you got good builders, that's, that's an easy thing to do. You're not trying to make a builder be able to do, you know, not saying build a jump, jump trail, when you don't know how to build jumps. We can choose the person who builds the best jump trail to build the best jump trail and stick them on that. And their crews are stoked. And, you know, at the same time, that's maybe not the crew that we put on building the beginner-friendly single track because they're not as motivated by it. So they work faster. They don't they don't look for those things the same way. But when we find that builder, that um, we can say, this is what you got to do: make sure there's good sight lines, put some playful kind of features on the side of the trail, uh, but make them small so that somebody on a you know not adult-sized bike can roll over them and you know, gets that technical challenge that they need when they start to go on the more, I'd say, trails that uh, are going to throw things at you. And you've got to be able to react on your bike because it's, it's not as manicured as an, of an experience. Um, if you're going fast, you're going to get up into the air. And so when you do that, you got to get your bike back down on the ground, too.
1: Yeah, for sure. With all of this. What are a couple of lessons or takeaways that you've learned through a project like this that you would, that you've thought about maybe implementing somewhere else or just, just some really good key points that you learned through this whole thing?
0: You know, like any project, this was done really quickly, but just like it was many at each one of these sites, it was many years in the making. And, you know, you gotta get that history. As somebody who's working on the project, and sometimes that means you know asking what you think are too many questions, and you know whenever we had a hiccup in this project, it came back to me, and I was like, it was because I didn't ask enough questions, and I didn't you know, I'm having a discussion with the folks that manage the mine fencing out at Redhead, and uh, they're like, yeah, we need to we need to replace all this fence. So, where can we go through it? They're like, we're having discussions that is holding up construction because they want to minimize the number of fence crossings. And now I'm calling the folks that got, you know, the permission to go through the fence and saying, how many? Nobody's ever told me we can't have unlimited fence crossings. But the fence people are out here and they're saying, we need to minimize these as much as possible. And so that meant that, you know, had to do some redesign and, you know, a bunch of things that were were ideas um, had to be thrown in the trash to create new ideas, uh, and we lost some efficiency there. But yeah, it's getting the full scope of what's necessary, what's possible. What are you know? What are the regulatory? What's the regulatory situation? Do we have all the permits? You know, those are things that you know. Whenever we had a slowdown, it was because all those ducks weren't in a row and you know that was in part on my shoulders that was in part on other people's shoulders but when you're in a hurry you got to make sure everything's dialed in before before you really get down to business
1: let's take this out of the iron range and let's talk about the viability of projects or potential projects like this in other locations
0: these are eminently doable projects from a public investment standpoint what the R did on these three trail systems, allocating five million dollars across the Iron Range for these three systems. It's almost a level of money that folks look at and say, you can't do anything that has an impact with that kind of money. We're often in the trail building world, you know, we all come from from volunteer routes generally, built trails with a mountain bike club at some point, And You know, we're often afraid of something that seems like it's going to cost money because we did it for free for so long. And, you know, you take it out of that sphere and, you know, what's it cost to build one mile of highway in Wisconsin? It's the numbers probably are similar to 80 miles of mountain bike trail. So that's the sphere that the public decision makers do deal in on a daily basis of, you know, you can't have an impact, especially at a community-wide or regional scale with something like $5 million. But $5 million investments are, especially on a regional scale like this, it's relatively small amount of money in their eyes. You know, you you compare it to ball field development and, uh, or road development and the impact that Trails and getting people outside have on a community is is just something that's hard for decision makers to understand because it's 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 not a product that they see. It's not a building that they see. But when you start to see you know how a community like in Grand Rapids, Cohasset changed visibly in three months with you know a portion of that investment to where you know, you talk to local businesses and there was no bike shop in town. All of a sudden there's a bike shop in town. A guy's moving his family back from Alaska to be closer to uh, his parents and, you know, have his kids be closer to their grandparents because since these trails are getting built, he's like, I'm a brewer in Alaska. I can open a brewery here and it's been wildly successful. So, you know, it's, you don't think about those things from a public investment standpoint often but it's not a big investment you know we're working on a trail system in southeastern ohio that's uh, going to be an 86 mile mountain bike focused trail system on national forest land the community created a recreation quasi governmental structure to like run the project and they went out and raised 4 million dollars in a couple years and it's getting, there's 30 miles on the ground and there's 20 more miles coming this year. And you just start to see those communities that it touches change almost immediately. And we don't always think about that in trails, but we should be talking to our city council people and county commissioners of, hey, make an investment in the community because that's what it is. It's it's an investment. And the return on that investment, the ROI is so fast. And it's gonna touch the community rather than one big business or the tax base. It's gonna be much broader than that, in that property values raise, small businesses thrive, people are healthier, they're happier. You look at a community like yours, a regional hospital can attract people out of a big city because of what lacrosse offers them. You know, the ROI on that is is. It's in intangibles. And so it's it's hard for us to talk about, but there's more and more studies all the time that are demonstrating the value of trails and the economic impact that they have. And in that way, you know, what is a really small investment at a community level uh, really leverages a lot of different things in that community. And that's, you know, people can find money and in some cases, you don't need a, a grant from a state department or a big nonprofit uh, that's got loads of money that they're going to invest into trails. You can find it in business and industry, just residents that believe in the power of trails and recreation and being able to get outside more often. And then those things just kind of start to snowball. And as it happens, you know we're not the, the trail gnomes in the woods that nobody sees anymore. We've grown up and we're at council meetings talking about, you know, why we need a bike park and why we need to invest in trails, not just hope that they get built and maintained by some dudes out there with hand tools.
1: Yeah. And you just, you just went off on a tangent in an area that I like to bring up. And since you're a planner, I'm going to ask you this in your experience, how often have you seen because of a trail plan external money sources open up that people didn't even know existed and i'm not talking about the grants i'm not talking about you know the i'm talking about that that one or two maybe it's maybe it's one philanthropist that didn't know he or she was interested in this until he saw the plan and it was like whoa because i know that's what happened in lacrosse
0: with our last system yeah exactly and you know when we develop plans for trail systems we talk to our clients about the fact that you know this can help you guide the development of the trail system um, in an orderly way and give you a product that's going to have a high community value. But this plan is also something that you should be using as a marketing tool to say, this is, this is what we're planning. This is how we're going to invest in this community. And you need to show it off. You need to make, you need to put it, a big banner on your city's website. You need to talk to people. You need to go present this at, you know, the Rotary Club and at other civic engagements. Because, you know, when you get the word out that you're making this investment, people spring up all the time and companies get behind it. And, you know, they built the last mile of uh, the Riverside Greenway in Little Rock, Arkansas, that was separated and, you know, it was right in the middle. And it was a hospital property that didn't allow for the connection to be made and this greenway to be consistent through the whole Riverside. And folks that were advocates went in with a plan. They walked into the hospital. They started visiting doctors. We did this at Valmont Bike Park in Boulder as well. You say, is this something you support? Yeah, I totally support this. Why hasn't it gotten done? Well, partially because your hospital's in the way and you need to deed that land over, partially because it's, it's not funded. We want you to write a check. And one doctor writes a check and that advocate walks into the next wing and says, Dr. Smith just wrote a check for this amount, for this project. Are you in? And all of a sudden, Checks just start to, it's not, and it's not just the checks, it's the support. You know, when 50 doctors in the hospital know that they're in part the key to, you know, closing the gap on this greenway, they're now also advocates in the community. They're not just, you know, it's not just the trail advocates running around saying, we need more trails. It's now community members that have, you know, fingers that reach deep and far into the community that are saying, hey, we need to get this done. And they become the people that run with it, that get the funding taken care of, and that you know, you've know you now taken the, the volunteer trail builder way out of the equation. We don't have to build trails and advocate for trails. We've got people from the community doing it for us.
1: And that perfectly tees up my next question, which is something I ask everybody. And this is personal for every person that gets asked the question. What, in your opinion, makes a great trail community?
0: You know, I, th- I think it's just that. It's a community that invests in its trails. You know, because it, every time and every place that they do it, doesn't matter if it's, you know, the two-mile hiking trail through around a city park. The return on that investment is almost immediate. And it's in health and well-being and a whole lot of other things that, you know, we maybe don't invest enough money into. So that community that invests in trails is that's what ends up making the trail community because the rest of it springs up around it, whether it's businesses, property values, that health and well-being, you know, that's it 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 comes right on the on the heels of that investment.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's that's a really good common thread with all of this. With that, before we close this thing out, do you, Scott Lindenberger, have any words of wisdom? Or anything you'd like to impart on our listeners
0: before we hit stop on the recording? You know, I think one of the biggest challenges from these kind of projects is that that investment is made, the trails get built, they're wildly successful, people have to take care of them. And figuring out how that's going to get done, engaging folks in a stewardship ethic early on um and before the project is done is challenging because in some ways, you know, doing a project like this, we didn't have to get the volunteers involved. You know, the local mountain bike club isn't out there putting sweat equity and, you know, building up more volunteers with more skills. We just dropped a 25-mile trail system on, on a small town with not a lot of capacity to take care of the trails. And we're saying now go take care of them. And If volunteers are going to take care of the trails, we need to build that engagement at a level that, you know, matches what the trail needs are. And modern trail systems certainly don't need as much care and feeding as, you know, things that were hand built or rake and ride kind of stuff that happened 20, 30 years ago. But at the same time, their needs, they have needs. In a lot of these places where these projects happen, we don't have a lot of high capacity park districts that will see that trail system and say, oh, well, we need to staff up and we need to have a summer trail crew that takes care of this. That's something that, you know, more park systems need to do. Uh, but in the meantime, it's often largely on the shoulders of volunteers. And there's a dwindling number of of trail volunteers, um, in my opinion, over the last 10 years or so when projects like this get done and you you're given a trail system that you didn't have to build by hand uh it's it's a great thing but it comes with its own challenges you know that's really something that challenging that challenges these iron range systems um you know small populations uh you got to build a trail community in a different way it's not just the guys who see each other on trails riding mountain bikes um it's how you engage grade school kids And families and non traditional stewards, and teach them that part of, you know, having these trails is, is taking care of them. And that's, it's a community asset. So it needs to be treated as such. When it does, those are the best trail communities because they always get things done. And, you know, building them from the ground up is, is a real challenge.
1: Yeah, and it, and it might not even be so much that the volunteer numbers are less, although I do agree with you that it does appear that they're less. But when those volunteers at one point were managing a six-mile system and now they have a 30-mile system, you're spreading that, that out, you know, and at the same time, why did we get into this? Because we like riding mountain bikes.
0: Yeah. I mean, with modern built trails, you hope that the maintenance is pretty minimal. Like, we're going out and trimming – Grass and dealing with leaf fall and minor drainage issues. But like I said, when you get 30 miles, that's, a, that's five times the system that you had before. And you probably need a few more volunteers, if not three to five times as many as you had when you're just maintaining those six miles.
1: Yeah, and you did touch on the fact that, you know, just getting, you know, parks departments staffed up for that. And it seems like, and we've I've talked about this at length on the show, but it seems like parks departments, you know, they're staffed up for maintaining that, that anything around a tennis court, which is not a lot around tennis courts, but ball fields and all the other stuff that they're used to maintaining for years. But now I'll kind of bringing them into the mix and what, you know, these are, it's a facility just like any other facility. The maintenance part, you know, is something that I'd, We'll continue to expose on this, uh, through this podcast because it's super important, you know, and I think there's just a lot of different ways we can tackle it proactively.
0: Yeah, that's, they are facilities. And this is what we tell clients all the time is that, you know, you building a trail system, it is a facility. Therefore it requires operations and maintenance. You cannot operate the facility, you know, in a vacuum. It's not going to operate itself and it will require maintenance. and. You're right folks know how to mow that's what parks departments have have done for lots of years they own equipment that they use to mow and do other things in their parks so it's really you know the capacity could be there it's just figuring out you know how because it's a new thing you know why are we maintaining the forest you know well because it needs it because it's our facility
1: yeah well scott with that it's been a pleasure to have you on the trail effect podcast. This is something that I've been trying to pull off for quite a while and getting you on. And we finally, we finally got you on to talk about this stuff because I've known you for well over a decade now as you've, you know, your are in days span back to lacrosse back into the mid two thousands, you know? And, and so it's, it's good to, it's good to have you on here. It's been a pleasure.
0: I love what you're doing with this.
1: Thank you for listening. Links to the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. Our next episode will feature Mitchell Allen, the trail project manager for the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.